Good evening. This is Jim Colburn of Commodity Research Group, and I'm here with Ed Meir, also of Commodity Research Group, and our special guest, Ben Ryan of Vela. And we're here to talk about gold. You can learn more about our group at commodityresearchgroup.com. We would like to thank our good friend, Doug Stetzer of EKT Interactive Oil and Gas Training for hosting and producing this podcast. You can check out his daily newsletter, podcast, and learning modules at ektinteractive.com. I just want to mention a little disclaimer. We'll be talking about futures and options. This podcast should be construed as market commentary, merely observing economic, political, and market conditions, and is not intended to refer to any particular trading system. We are not responsible for any trading decisions taken by anyone not intended to listen. Information is not guaranteed to be accurate. This is not an offer to buy or sell any derivative. Today is October 12th. I'd like to welcome our special guest, uh, Ben Ben Ryan. Um, let me just say a few things about Ben. Uh, Ben's been an active options market maker with a primary focus on COMEX Gold. He's also taught and consulted on options market markets and options theory, and learned how to trade options primarily by working with a group of veteran floor traders. Recently, Ben has taken up a position at Vela, which is a premier market access technology provider that offers end-to-end solutions for multi-asset electronic trading, along with global market coverage. We are pleased to have him with us. So, uh, guys, we're going to talk about gold, but um, first, uh, since we have Ben with us, um, Ben, why don't you start and talk about your experience uh, recently or uh, over the last few years of trading in gold options and uh, maybe how uh, mentioned, you know, bid offer spreads, uh, uh, liquidity uh, as we've moved from, you know, from the floor to the uh, to the screen. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you both very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, so I started on the floor in about 2010. I was an assistant working for a group of about four or five different guys who were trading gold, silver, and copper options specifically. And um, I learned from watching them. And it's incredible, you know, when we were preparing for this podcast and I had to think back to 2010, it's really amazing when you consider that we're only seven years later. And literally, when I was on the floor, there were a lot of people who weren't even considering, you know, switching over and doing electronic trading. All they wanted to do was what they had done traditionally, which was make markets in the pit. Um, You know, we use the term sheets. People literally had sheets and there were still people who were actually using sheets in their hands, which were, you know, having written down values on a sheet of paper that helped them decide how they were going to make markets around options. And the change is just so significant. You know, then people moved over to having tablets and they had their electronic um, markets on their tablets that they held in the pit. And now the pit is not there at all. The other big difference one of the other major differences aside from just going from pit trading to electronic trading is the hours. Now markets are pretty much 24 hours a day. Comex Gold, aside from the weekends, is open uh, 23 hours a day. So unlike before where you had a lot of concentrated volume in a particular period of time, say between about 8.20 in the morning and 1.30 East Coast time, now volume can come in at you know, any particular time. 
Now you asked about uh, Jim about the bid ask spread. So, you know, when even five six years ago, certainly more ten years ago, but even five six years ago, the width of bid ask spreads was wider. Um, because so what you would have is a market maker. The primary job in its simplest form is to make markets where they can put a bid out there, put an offer out there, and buy on the bid and sell on the offer. And um, over time, as the electronic markets became more of a um, staple, what people, you know, the people who were making the markets on the screen were doing them much and much, much tighter. So now, and we'll talk about this as the podcast goes on, but now what's so amazing is while it's bad for market makers, traditional market makers like my group, because those spreads have tightened and therefore, you know, the width of the spread and the amount you can expect to make by buying on the bid and selling on the offer is less. It's actually a major opportunity, I think, for you know perhaps smaller traders who are interested in taking a look at gold on the option side, because the slippage is less. You don't have to go in and pay a major um, a, a whole lot to cross the spread and lift the offer or hit the bid because they're tight. So what that means is that people looking to get into the markets um, and just trade whether you're trading you know one or two lots or you know 20 or 30, 50, 100 lots the spread that you have to pay is less. And, and we, we'll talk about that as, that, this, as we go on, but I think ben, that's one of the major changes. Ben, I think that's uh, really important because um, sometimes you hear, that, I'm, we wanna know, we'll talk about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but it seems like for small investors, which, which I consider, or traders I consider myself, it's, it's an amazing time because you can, you can get on a platform you know, or, or your phone and, and get, um, really tight I and mean, then talk about options. I mean, in the, in, when I got into the, uh, oils in, in 1986, when they start, uh, start trading options, it was two, two vowel point wide. So that would be, you know, seven, eight cents for an at the money option. Now it's, you know, just a couple pennies. So for a small investor, I think it's, uh, it's in one way, it's a golden age to be, uh, trading these markets. And you, and you, I think you see that in the volumes too. I mean, I think they, the, the, uh, uh, traders are coming from all over the world, you know, on the, on their, uh, many of them on their cell phones, but sorry, Con continue. No I, no, I agree a hundred percent. Right. I mean, the, if you, if you have the idea of price discovery, right, which is kind of what, you know, a term that we, we used to use when we talk about what a market maker would do, right. There'd be price discovery. You'd have one broker come to the pit with a certain type of order who had to get 500 lots of something done. Then you'd have a retail broker come in who always had an ax to buy or sell a certain type of strike in a certain time of month. And the market makers in the pit who represented a large portion of the liquidity for these you know, other um, brokers who represented other sorts of clients coming in to the market looking to take on a certain position with a certain ax, at that time, market makers were really, it was called price discovery and they used basis of options theory to, you know, fit curves and try to come up with what price would be reasonable given the scope of orders that were out there. Um, the game has changed now, you know, computers are generating a lot of these values and the, you know, it's, it's gotten so sophisticated, but I think that to your point about the small investor, the sophistication of the markets and the level of technology that goes into what some of the, you know, high frequency shops or some of the not even high frequency, but just, um, you know, computer market makers, while they may be incredibly sophisticated, their sophistication is to the benefit of the smaller guy who, or small investor 
because a small investor, as we said, doesn't have to pay through on either side. And if, you know, long or short, whichever way you want to go, these spreads are tighter than they've ever been. And I think provides a lot of opportunity for people uh, looking to come in with any, any particular opinion in one of these markets. Excellent. Uh, I, you know, I think, uh, I think I'll start looking at gold options. No, I, I don't, I don't trade, I don't trade gold options, but um, it's uh, I have to say that the downside that I was uh, doing paper on the floor um, from, from upstairs and I found early on, there was still a floor, there was still a screen and I, and I just felt like the screen bid offer spread went away. As soon as, as soon as the stuff hit the fan, so to speak, the volatility picked up, the bid offer spreads disappeared on the screen. Um, and you had to go to the floor to get some really good uh, bid offer spreads. It, is it, does that stuff still happen or, or is it pretty, pretty much? I mean, I would expect if volatility picks up, I'd expect the bid offer spread to widen, but it seemed like it was, uh, you know, totally disappearing. I, I, I guess the, that doesn't happen so much anymore. And that was about five years ago. So, Yeah, not really. Well, certainly, you know, the floor, the physical floor is gone, but the OTC markets, um, you know, if you're looking to get 500 lots off, or some any more size, you know, as opposed to just a 10, 20 lot order, you're going to see some widening of the spreads, but still relative to what you're talking about. And when you were, you know, talking about this in the eighties and everything, like the idea of a widespread now doesn't even compare to what you're talking about, even right. with the stuff, you know? Right. Right. Okay. So um, what happened to all these people? They, I mean, the people on the floor, they don't, they don't become, Trade, traders on a screen because like you said it's computers right do they they go into other they're gone or they do something else because it's is it a transferable skill i guess is what i'm asking can you trade on the floor <laughs> then go up to a desk and trade from a desk you cert certainly you can i think that the challenge though is that you know like i said in terms of the concepts of price discovery and being a market maker who's able to um, use their knowledge about options theory. It has value, right? You could join a structured products desk and that options knowledge is certainly going to be valuable there. You can go to a certain fund perhaps that's looking to um, put on positions in certain markets and there are ways that you can use options um, that might allow you to put on a position that reflects a certain opinion more effectively than just the futures, right? So like if for instance you wanted to, your long-term opinion on gold is bullish, but you think it's going to be limited in the amount that it goes up and the speed that it goes up, you might buy a call one by a call spread in a one by two fashion. So you might collect a little bit of premium selling that premium, meaning that if gold doesn't go up or sit still, you actually make a little bit of money. But if it goes up slowly, you have the chance to make, you know, some more money as well. You just lose if it goes up super fast. So in that kind of situation, um, you know, a fund who has an opinion that's more specific like that, given a certain environment, they might look to like an old floor market maker and their expertise in options and optimal option structuring for advice, consulting, or just actually implementing the trades to um, put on those optimal structures to reflect uh, the concepts that they're looking for. But if we're being honest with ourselves, you know, those jobs are few and far between when you're comparing it once again to 10, 15 years ago, when you know the risk was more spread out, I would say across you know more participants um, because there was more, you know there was just more edge in the game. And and this is not necessarily you know one thing I think to keep in mind is that it we can postulate about how much of this is due to electronic trading, 
but we're also sitting here with the stock market at all-time highs, right? So, you know, a couple years back, you know, the in 2008, the S&P was trading 666. I always remember that number. It's the devil's number, right? It was kind of the low on the S&P. And here it is trading over 2,500, up, you know, nearly four times. So when you see a stock market that's up and, you know, the Fed, and Ed, you can get into this a little bit with your background and, and knowledge about global markets, you're seeing volatility in general or the demand for options really start to dwindle a bit. And when the, the option, when the demand and the volatility comes in, generally for hedge funds and, and for people who are trading the options, it's just a lot harder to make money in a low vol environment. So I think we have to be careful not to say that, you know, because markets have become electronic and because the bid ask spreads have tightened, that that's the only reason that, um, you know, that we see volatility at these lows, which then hurts the level of participation and the ability for speculators to make money. It may also be the fact that we're in a massive or we've been in a massive bull market in equities. And, you know, typically the correlation in volatility goes across the spectrum and, you know, gold, um, gold options, all options for the most part tend to get cheaper as the stocks go higher, even if it doesn't seem like there's a correlation, you know? Yeah, uh, Ben, that's a very good point. I, I, I would add to that. Hopefully you can hear me clearly. We can. Uh, um, you know, at the CME Precious Metals Dinner in September, uh, uh, Mohammed El Aryan, the uh, PIMCO, uh, former PIMCO economist, uh, was the guest speaker. And he pointed out a very interesting fact, which is uh, volatility in the markets uh, and gold's kind of status as a safe haven have both been uh, trimmed back, you know, decreased because central banks, in a way, have become the safe haven. You know, they're providing the liquidity, they're providing the backstop to the system. So people are, are, are not sort of getting freaked out anymore because they know the Fed, the ECB, the Bank of Japan uh, will all be there in, in the event of, of possibly another uh, liquidity squeeze or a, or a financial crisis or what have you. So I think that kind of plays into your point in that the volatilities are compressing, partly uh, uh, mainly because of the higher equity markets, granted, but also because you have the central banks kind of hovering in the background and acting as, as a check on, on anything that could go uh, crazy in the system. I thought that was a very interesting point that, that El Arian pointed out. I, I agree. Now, I just a follow-up question for you. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the media about Kevin Warsh possibly replacing, replacing Janet Yellen um, and different Fed policy going forward. Potential Fed reduction of the balance sheet is something he's been, you know, discussing. Uh, even if it's not uh, that particular Fed governor who ends up taking Cherry Yellen's spot, do you have any feelings in general about the implications for global markets if the Fed is to trim back. I, I wasn't at the gold dinner, so I didn't hear the speech. So I know you spoke very highly of uh, his talk, but I'd be curious either his or your, uh, or your thoughts just about maybe in the next year or two, what we might expect to happen and how that might play into, you know, the way markets, volatility rates, anything like that might react. 
That's a good question. Ben, really no one knows the answer to that because we really are in such uncharted territory. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it really is. I mean, the, the Fed's balance sheet, I read somewhere, it took uh, 90 years for it to get from uh, practically zero to 300 billion. And then uh, during the 2008 crisis, it, it quadrupled in three months from 300 billion to around 1.5 trillion. And then it tripled again over the next several years to about 4 trillion now. I mean, this is a massive, massive uh, balance sheet. And to kind of bring it back to size, as they're starting to do, uh, no one really knows uh, what the implications will be because we really haven't been uh, at such a level before. And I don't think any of these guys know either. Wh whoever, is, <laughs> whoever is going to be the next uh, chairman or chairwoman, uh, I really don't know if they have a sense of what what the implications of of uh, sort of this cutback will be um, I th so I think they're all very kind of careful about what they say and they're sort of uh, starting things off on a very on a very gradual track they don't want to tighten up too quickly or, 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 or sell off their assets too quickly uh, so they're, they're kind of doing it in a very nuanced and, and long-term situation just to to minimize uh, any potential shocks. Yeah, I so. think that I think that's a good point. You know, I, I think to your point about being uncharted territory, I, I would just say to listeners in general, um, whether you're sophisticated or not, you know, my five years or so of uh, intense day-to-day -day market trading, one thing it certainly taught me is that you have to be very careful not to fall in love with narratives and the idea that any one thing is going to mean something else. I, I heard, right. I forget, I heard some give a uh, quote to the fa to the uh, point of the idea that markets have a way of, you know, letting everybody think they understand exactly what's going on and then cause the most pain for those who, who really think they understand, you know, the dynamics at play. And, you know, a per perfect example, right? You went, we talked <laughs> about safe havens, like gold, for example. I remember when gold was trading 1800, I uh, sorry, when the stock market sold off a couple years ago to 1800, gold broke out above 1200 and that was the big breakout, went up to 1260 at about a $65 move overnight into the next day because stocks were crashing. Well, what's happened since then? The stocks bottom out at 1800 and they've gone up to 25 and change and gold is trading higher than it was then. So, right. you know, there are a lot of assumptions people make about like gold's a safe haven or not, or, you know, if, if any, if this happens, then this should happen. Rates, rates, we've been in a rate rising environment, which is supposed to be bad for gold. And gold, exactly. gold has been, since they raised rates, gold bottomed out a couple of years ago in December when they were raising, you know, we've only raised since, right? So right. you got to be careful with the assumptions. I no, agree. I agree. I think the narrative is, it's almost a weekly, uh, weekly change in the narrative. Uh, it's, it's not a monthly or a annual or three-quarterly narrative. It, it's so dynamic, and it changes practically week to week. You're absolutely right. So um, if I look at the longer-term chart of gold, it looks like we're in a, um, maybe a trading range now with a bottom maybe a little bit below 1200 
and a top of um, not quite up to 1400. Is, is that something that you got? I mean, if we, if we go, is there, is there any fear in that's coming into goal that you guys are seeing from say geopolitical tension that's, you know, maybe keeping gold up while the stock market makes new highs like North Korea, Iran, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't know uh, what gold's reacting to, but do you see any of that coming into the marketplace? So I would say, um, <laughs> to your point about not knowing what gold's reacting to, that's just an astute observation and you're just not assuming too much, which is the bright thing because, you know, with my previous example, um, even outside of the safe haven, you know, argument, going back to what Ed was talking about with the balance sheet, you have so much money out there. You hear people talking about inflation and how gold might react in an inflationary or non-inflationary environment and what happens if they start to tighten the balance sheet. You know, like, like Ed said, we're kind of in uncharted territory. So to look at the history of rates in, you know, whatever, the 70s, 80s, 90s, and you guys know a lot more about that than I do, but it's very hard to compare. It's not an apples to apples comparison because you didn't have a Fed that, you know, quadrupled their balance sheet, as Ed said, in the span of a couple of months. So right. when it comes to gold, what I look at, the only thing I really think you can look at is, is price, right? And, and the price action. And to your point, I mentioned gold making its low around 1050, 1045 a couple of years back, right. actually right <laughs> as they were raising rates. When I look at the chart, I see a series of higher highs and higher lows. The thing is, it's incredibly gradual. Gold's basically been in a downtrend since about 2013. And then somewhere, I think it was February 2015 or so, it looked like it broke out of that downtrend the, you know, the day that the S&P hit 1800. And since then, it went up to 1375. It came back, made a low, but they made a higher low at 11 quarter. Correct. And since it looks like it's trying to work its way higher. But again, you know, it's very gradual. So I would say what gold has certainly shown is that the willingness to sell it has gone, has decreased a great deal. And from here, you know, we'll just have to see what the chart says. But it has been one massive rage trade. I give you that. But it has are, been a range are you seeing, you're, so basically you, you don't see uh, uh, lots of uh, deep out of the money call buying in gold when we when we hear a like a see a presidential tweet or something about north korea you don't see a flurry of upside so, call buying it's a good question um actually you do um but so, so uh, and that that's where we have to differentiate i think between short term and long term so long term the gold being a safe haven asset no it's not but when, you know, um, Kim Jong-un is in the news and Trump tweets something about, you know, with the words war in it or fire and blood or anything like that, gold is going to react. Literally, there are algos out there that ha are looking at Trump's tweets or tweets that are going out that are incendiary. And as soon as something bad happens, they're going to buy the end. They're going to buy gold. And that's going to happen in the short term. It just doesn't have a very long-term effect. But right. what you see in gold is like that the um, calls generally, we call it a call skew. Gold has become a call skew market, meaning that the demand for an equidistant call to put in the same month. So if gold's trading 1300, the 1350 call is going to be more, worth more than the 1250 put. Because there is, I think, you know, gold is still viewed as a certain level of insurance and particularly in a market now 
where there are some geopolitical concerns, um, I do think that that causes there to be sort of a floor and constant demand underneath those call options. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that um, there's a persistent fear, which is why I don't think you've seen gold able to, you know, have any extended sort of rally. It's just in a short moment, if, gold, if there's bad news out there and people get scared, they will go to gold. It's just not something that you can rely on over any extended period of time is what I'd say. Uh, interesting about the skew, um, the oil market's the opposite. It's always got a put skew, and that's because Mexico hedges a bunch of oil, as do uh, other producers, and it, it blows out the put volatility relative to the call volatility. Um, right, it's, so it's not 100%, but it, you know, over the years, that's what it tends to be. Right, um, and, that, and yeah. just for, for listeners, if you just go a little further on that, Jim, so Mexico, right, they they're an oil producing nation, right? So yeah. they're hedging by selling calls, right? Uh, well, they buy puts, they don't sell calls. They buy puts, yeah. got it. Yeah. So that increases, yeah. got it, yep. Yep. Um, well, I just, here's a question for you guys. Um, I think back in August, uh, was it Ray Dalio? One of, one of the uh, fund managers said um, he thinks five to 10% portfolio in gold is, is, a, is a good hedge. Is that, is that something you guys hear a lot? Has it changed over the years? What do you, what do, you do you want to say anything about that? It's not an you know, interesting uh, question. I, I think I, I, I think that that could be uh, a reasonable allocation. I don't know if I'd go up to 10%, but certainly between 5 to 10 would be reasonable. Uh, and I've, I've been one who was probably at zero on gold for years. <laughs> but the more, the more you see how, uh, how uh, sort of unsettled the financial system is, the more you would think that you need to have a little bit of your nest egg uh, in gold and, and not, not necessarily trade it. it. It just becomes you know, part of your overall portfolio. You have cash, bonds, gold, real estate, whatever it is. Uh, a little, of, a little bit of that should be should be in gold. Uh, uh, given given this kind of in, intense liquidity um, expansion we've been seeing, uh, that to my mind uh, there is still no clear way out. Okay. And, yep. Go and ahead. To your mind, Ed. That makes you want to. Does that mean you still want to, are, do you own any gold now or no? I've been looking to buy some gold. I've been waiting for a bit of a pullback. I missed it at around, uh, uh, when it got to uh, um, 1,200, I was waiting for a breach of that 1,200 level, uh, but it never got there and I kind of missed it. But I, I am looking uh, to buy some for myself. Right. Um, once again, playing the range a little bit and, and uh, uh, positioning myself at, at the right level, I wouldn't mind picking up some for myself. Yeah. So to, to the question, you know, I, um, I subscribe to a, a site called TraderDan.net. Uh, it's a guy named Dan Norsini, who's been a longtime commodity trader that I have a whole world of respect for. So, you know, as an options trader, um, I'm, I don't consider myself, um, you know, particularly astute, more than the average person, but not too astute on the actual price of gold and what drives it. And in site, he does a really good job of um, just laying out sort of the things that are at play. But he's talked about this insurance concept. And yeah, I think that's the number you hear, 5 to 
but I, I think it's something that's not worth overthinking, right? If you want to own some gold, own five or 10% and, you know, just leave it at that. Um, you know, I know we're going to wrap up here soon. I would just say to, you know, to listeners, one thing you have to be very careful about with gold and, you know, Dan, whose site I subscribe to, as I mentioned, is an exception. Guys like Ed, whose work I read, um, is also an exception to this. But there are a lot of people out there, they're mainly gold dealers, who just want to sell physical gold because they get paid commission on it. And they put out highly bullish rhetoric trying to trap you know, people and take advantage of their fear. And what you see happening too, too, too often is that people end up seeing that fear, reading that information and buying it. You know, you've got to be careful if you're going to be a disciplined investor not to be looking at some of these, what we call the gold cult and what they have to say, because they're often just trying to line their own pockets. So, um, you know, guys like you guys, you know, again, it's a real pleasure to be on this call with you because, you know, I have a lot of respect for both of you and you tell it like it is. And certainly, Ed, having read your stuff over the last few years, uh, your gold analysis, I've always been, um, I've always thought was very fair and um, reasonable and it, it's logic. So, Thank you. Not everybody's like Ed out there. Uh, thank you. That's very nice of you to say that. So, um, Ed, but let's, I, I, I let's, agree with uh, with Ben uh, that you know um, you've got to not sort of get swayed by certainly all the infomercials and stuff like that. But I, I think there is a, there is a role for gold in one's portfolio. Let me just end up. I'm just looking at a very interesting table. For what it's worth, the last 15 years. Uh, since 2001, 16 years, gold has been flat one year, uh, down 24% in 2013, down 4% in 2015. The rest of the 13 years, it's been up anywhere from 7% to about 26%. So certainly the last 16 years have been a... Uh, generally a favorable backdrop for gold. Now, having said that, the 15 years before that were terrible for gold. But, uh, but what, what we need to keep in mind is that the last 15 years are more uh, comparable to what we, what we should expect over the next 15 in terms of the low interest rate environment, the high liquidity, the high balance sheets. So, uh, the 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 uh, sort of the the uh, ground where gold is growing in is is much different than it was in the 80s and 90s when when it was just getting pummeled uh, in in a high interest rate high inflation uh, environment or I should say high interest rate environment. Uh, so I just thought I would share that. I'm, so, again, I'm not advocating we you, everybody should go out and buy it, but but. It was quite interesting to see that 13 out of the last 16 years, uh, gold has had a pretty decent upside return. And and going forward, what would you, you're saying that it, it's going to well, be going a, forward. I'm saying you know the, the dynamic is pretty much the same. You know we we're still in this low rate environment. We're going to stay in this low rate environment. I think for the next decade at least. Uh, that doesn't mean gold is going to take off, but I, I don't see it uh, crashing with, with all this liquidity that's, that's in the system and that has to be unwound at some point. Anything you guys want to add so uh, it's time to wrap up? Ben? 
Uh, no, I think I've covered most of what I have to say. That's actually pretty fascinating, Ed. I was listening to your numbers there, and uh, be honest, I was even though I stare at this chart constantly, I was a little surprised by that number. Yes, I was too. It was given to me again <laughs> by one of these physical guys who are trying to sell gold. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I got it. Yeah. So there you go. No, That's I, the pitch. I agree with you, though. I mean, look, it's the, the idea of being short gold as a as a spec play. I mean, you can try, you can do it on this short term trade. Yeah. Um, one thing to you know to pay attention to the swap dealers in this market. Um, you know, the banks are very sophisticated, and if you if you follow the commitment of traders historically, they do very well. So you know, that's one thing to keep in mind. It's not a reason to jump on any other side of the trade. <laughs> But that's just if you're in the trade for trying to take out between 30 to $100 max, you know, based on the chart, it's really hard to look for $200 a downside or something like that back to the lows, unless you see, as Ed said, like the, you know, environment completely changing. So if the, if the next 15 years, if, if you agree with that, you know, postulation that we're likely to be in a lower rate environment over the next 10 years or so, it's not really worth trying to get short gold and make your living that way. Right. And people who are looking to cover in their portfolio, look, I'd, I'd say I'd say I personally am more of a fan of around 5% if you're looking for a balanced portfolio. But mm -hmm. then again, I'm not a portfolio manager. I was uh, an options trader, so I'm probably the wrong guy to listen to. But uh, I just wanted to say thank you guys. I've really enjoyed this. I enjoy your podcast very much. And Hey, Ben. Uh, yeah. What is what's the uh, the uh, website address for Vela? Vela is v e l a t t dot com, and okay. uh, please feel free to take a look. It's a it's a full service um, offering that Vela has, so I won't get into it too far now. But for you know both um, big hedge funds down to smaller traders, there's stuff that uh, Vela offers that is worth your time if you're um, if you're in the trading game to take a look at. Very good. I'll be interested to look at that. And maybe we could uh, do another podcast on, on what you guys are actually doing. That'd be in, great. In the marketplace. Uh, Ed, anything else? Or? No. Uh, thanks, Jim, for a great job moderating. I appreciate it. Okay. This is Jim Colburn, Commodity Research Group with Ed Meir, Commodity Research Group. You can check us out at commodityresearchgroup.com. And our special guest today has been Ben Ryan. 